great stories from amazing people. Conversations from the Marsh at Podcast Alley. This is Sports and More with Dean Millard. Press jumped all over Steve Smith, and, and you really, I think you defended him quite well in those situations. Yeah, I mean, it's its one of those things that a game happens fast, and accidents happen, bad goals happen. It's just one of those things that happens. And I thought what it taught us at the time was if you play the way you, your team's capable of playing, you don't leave it for a bad bounce or something to change the outcome of a game. And I think that was a big thing that we learned in that is why make a game close if you don't have to. The always gracious Grant Fuhr, Hockey Hall of Famer, five-time Stanley Cup champion. He will join us on the show today. And that was discussing 1986, uh, Steve Smith accidentally banks one off uh, Fuhr's skate into the net against the Flames, and the, the consecutive run is done. Um, geez, it's, it's just, you could play what if all you want and go back and see, you know, how many in a row would they have won? Well, how many more had they, would they have won if they didn't trade Gretzky and, and break up that team? But that's for another day. We're going to talk to Grant Fuhrer about, uh, his life in hockey and out, and we're going to have a lot of fun. It's a good conversation. Uh, it's interesting how he started out, you know, he's a Southpaw goalie, but couldn't find that kind of equipment. We'll chat about the dynasty, some of the unsung heroes, you know, what it was like watching Wayne Gretzky develop from the best seat in the house. Think about the views that Grant Fuhrer had, whether he was playing or on the bench or in practice, the adversity that he and the team faced. We mentioned 86. He also got railroaded by the NHL without a positive drug test was suspended originally for a year. So an absolute joke at the time by the national hockey league, but it's, you know, you can ask Grant Fuhrer questions and he will answer them. And there's a lot of trolls out there that try to throw mud at Grant Fuhrer for his past mistakes. And he just owns them by simply saying, Hey, I made my mistakes too. I'm sure you have, like, he is so gracious. It's amazing. So we're going to discuss all that. Also some of the relationships he had with his, uh, goaltending partners, particularly Andy Mogan Edmonton, the Canada cup 87 is on the list. And this guy is a terrific golfer. He works in the golf business right now. Uh, so we're, we're going to have a really fun, wide-ranging wide uh, conversation with uh, Grant Fear on the program today. Uh, just quickly, the uh, Maple Leafs and the Penguins making a swap. The Toronto Maple Leafs, they finally are going to get some cap relief as they have dealt Kasperi Kapanen, uh, along with uh, defenseman uh, Jesper Lindgren and infamous former oiler left winger Pontus Aberg the Leafs uh they're getting a decent haul 2020 first round pick which is 15th overall uh Evan Rodriguez who's a you know kind of a versatile for bottom six guy Philip Hollander who definitely has some potential a recent uh, second round pick and David Warsawski who is just a, a minor league defenseman did score a lot in um, his college years, but hasn't translated that into the National Hockey League. So the Penguins, it's in Jim Rutherford, gets Kasperi Kapanen again. He traded him to Toronto for Phil Kessel. Got two cups out of it, and so he's hoping to get, you know, if he can get even half of that out of this trade, he'll be dancing. And Kapanen, you know, now goes from a crowded Toronto Maple Leaf team to a spot on either Crosby or Malkin's wings. So 
this is a I think this is a really good trade for Pittsburgh. Um, you know, they give up a first round pick and they give up a prospect, but you know, Evan Rodriguez and and Warsawski, they're 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 kind of throwing Rodriguez could play a role with the Toronto Maple Leafs, but you know, the the kind of impact that they're gonna get is gonna be from that first round pick and the cap relief that they have. So I guess you could say it's a good trade for both sides. I think it's a better trade for uh, uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins, you know, even though they give up a first round pick. So we'll see how that rolls out and what else kind of shakes down as, uh, you know, these teams that are out of the playoffs continue to tinker. Our weekly tribute is NBC for getting Mike Milbury off the air. Uh, And it's, it's clear that this guy just has no filter. And I'm sorry, in this day and age, if you're going to be on a cable television channel, you got to have a filter. First of all, he thought the Space Needle was in wherever the hell he was, New York, Toronto. I can't even remember where he was that night. And then, you know, the the ridiculous th- things he says about Tuka Rask and that he bailed on his teammates and nobody should be doing that without even knowing what the personal situation is. And then says there's no women here to distract. Also, he mentioned that the 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 lack of fans was like a women's college game. And, you know, here's the NHL trying to say hockey is for everyone. And you have this jackass basically calling women distractions. Am I hot? Yeah, I'm hot. That's a crock of crap. Even Gretter thinks it's a crock of crap. So the weekly tribute is NBC getting Mike Milbury off the air. And let's hope they keep him off the air um there are plenty of great analysts that don't have to be jackasses to get their point across brian burke like brian burke on hockey night in canada can you dig it yeah i can i can definitely dig brian burke can you dig it you know why i also love brian burke because he knows what he can say He can be edgy, and he's a lawyer. He knows what he can't say. I also really am liking Kevin Bieksa. I didn't think I would ever say something like that, but I am digging Kevin Bieksa on uh, the panel. I, I like I love how he points things out and then he critiques it like he carves himself. He, he's I think he's great. He's adding to it. So, I think Hockey Night in Canada's panel is is really strong. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Kelly Rudy. That's why we had him on the show recently. Cassie Campbell, Anthony Stewart. Uh, I like Friedman. Uh, so there there's a really good panel blooming on uh, Hockey Night in Canada. You throw Colby Armstrong in there every once in a while. It's uh, it's pretty good stuff. So the weekly tribute is to NBC for getting Mike Milbury off the air. All right, as for our top three, it is presented by Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports. I've been telling you for a while now about the Ultimate Franchise Hockey League. Uh, we are in the midst. Uh, franchises and scouts are bidding on already drafted players. The prize pool for next season is already over $13,000 in our league. It is crazy. The auctions are fast and furious. It's a great ecosystem using the blockchain. Um, A, fantasy value, uh, franchise uh, valuations have gone through the roof. It's it's awesome. So it's a high stakes fantasy game, but if you can get in it, you will absolutely love it. And it mimics the NHL. Only 31 teams, soon to be 32, 
uh, uses an auction system. There's scouting agencies involved. Craig Button is actually uh, uh, the head scout for my wife's scouting agency in the Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports. And they just announced that they're going into the MMA. So this Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports platform is growing. It is the most realistic fantasy sports game out there, and it is high stakes. Big money can be won in this situation. And if you're into uh, UFC or some of the other MMA uh, disciplines and leagues out there, you will definitely want to check it out. Uh, so uh, head to the website, www.uffsports.com. Simple. All right. Uh, we are going today with your uh, top three uh, most underrated superstars. Uh, guys that, and it's in honor of Dale Howarchuk, by the way. Um, it's, uh, a way to say like Dale Howarchuk was a superstar. Look at the numbers. You just had to watch him play. He was dynamite, but he played in the smite division. Unfortunately, the jets were overshadowed by Gretzky and the Oilers and the flames. So Dale Howarchuk for me is uh, a massively underrated superstar. So he's my honorable mention, uh, when it comes to, this list. Um, I think Dale Howard Chuck was great. It was evident. Uh, he was on Canada cup teams. He was a first overall pick. He was a superstar, but he did play unfortunately in Wayne Gretzky's shadow as pretty much everybody did in that situation. So, so that's a guy that gets my honorable mention. Uh, number three for me is Scotty Pippen. I mean, if you're going to play in somebody's shadow, it might as well be the greatest player of all time in basketball and Michael Jordan. Uh, but Pippen was definitely, I think an underrated, uh, superstar. Now I think basketball people didn't underrate him, but the general public just thought, oh, he's just a wingman. He's just a wingman. He's just Jordan's, you know, whatever. And he was so much more than that. Um, so I think, uh, you know, for him playing in that shadow, uh, Scotty Pippen for me is an underrated, a superstar Phil Mickelson. Uh, I'm, I'm coming up with Phil because he was in the shadow of not the greatest golfer of all time. That's Jack Nicholas, but the most popular golfer of all time in Tiger Woods, who was also obviously very good at what he did, uh, on the course. And, you know, he was also very good at destroying his marriage. So depending on what category you want to put him in, in that, uh, as far as greatness, but the, you know, Phil Mickelson won a lot of titles, just not as many as Tiger and not as many majors, but ultimately Mickelson is a superstar. Now, is he underrated? Um, I think he is. I think Phil Mickelson's uh, golf skill set is criminally underrated. A lot of people are going to say, you're just saying that because you don't like Tiger Woods. And I don't like Tiger Woods. I'm, I will admit that I am a Phil fan. Uh, but I, you know, I think, you know, Phil just played in the, everybody like, like Gretzky and, uh, Tiger Woods put everybody in his shadow. So you could pick, you could pick our Ernie Els, you could pick VJ Singh. You could pick any of those guys that were all dwarfed by Tiger Woods shadow in the game. And rightfully so Tiger Woods is the most popular golfer of all time. He is the, 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 the most important golfer to the game of golf of all time. Not the best that's Nicholas. But Tiger Woods moved the needle more than anybody. Ernie started it, Jack took it, and then Tiger really took it and ran with that. So for that reason, uh, I'm going with uh, uh, Phil Mickelson as an uh, an underrated uh, superstar in uh, the game of golf on the PGA Tour. And my number one underrated superstar 
is uh, Ron Francis. I mean, this, you know, Ron Francis played in Hartford, which not a lot of people cared about. There was a few, but let's be honest. Uh, the Whalers were uh, an ignored franchise for a long time, which is why they eventually moved. And then Francis ended up in Pittsburgh where, yeah, he was great, but he was playing with Mario Lemieux. So he was in the shadow. But you look at the all-time point totals in the NHL and where Ron Francis is. Like, I bet you there's a lot of kids that are, are you know, they when somebody asks them, who are the all-time NHL leading point producers? And they're going to probably get Gretzky. From the last few years, they'll get Yager. Um, they'll probably know Messier and Gordie Howe. But they might not be able to get number five, Ron Francis. So as far as underrated superstars, Hall of Famers go, like Dale Howarchuk, Ron Francis fits the bill with almost 1,800 NHL points. So I'm going with Dale Howarchuk as my honorable mention. He's the the basis of this topic. Scotty Pippen as number three. Phil Mickelson, number two. Say what you want. Everybody played in Tiger's shadow, and Phil should be more of a superstar than he is, in my opinion. And Ron Francis, almost 1,800 points, fifth all-time in the NHL. But if you ask somebody who are the five top scorers in NHL history, they might not get Ron Francis most of the time. By the way, if you want to get into the Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports platform, head to www.uffsports.com. In this format, you own the game, so make sure you get in the game. And check out Podcast Alley if you're interested in other shows. We'll have one-timers with Grant Fuhr in a couple of days. We'll also have Tracking the Draft with Craig Button and Yoki Nevalainen this week from Dauber Scouting Across the Pond. We're going to add a little splash of finish to the show. And we'll also be featuring the band Fresh Breath and One Hitters on the Cannabis 101 podcast that comes out on Wednesday. So you can find all of that at Podcast Alley dot ca hockey hall of famer grant fear on the other side of the bio time for the bio grant fear was born and raised in spruce grove alberta just a few kilometers outside of edmonton he moved to victoria bc to play hockey for the cougars of the whl when he was 15 and moved back to alberta when the oilers drafted him eighth overall in 1981 with edmonton he helped the oilers win five stanley cups and along the way, won two Canada Cubs and a Vesna Trophy. He also played with Toronto, Buffalo, LA, St. Louis, and Calgary. With the Blues, he set an NHL record by starting in 79 games. After retirement, he worked as a goalie coach in the NHL and took a run at becoming a touring pro golfer. He was the first person of color elected to the Hockey Hall of Fame. Grant Fear currently is the director of golf at Desert Dunes Golf Club in Palm Springs, where he lives with his wife, Lisa. Grant, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on this program, although I do have a confession to make. When I was a kid, I did not like you for the most childish of reasons, and I'll tell you why. I grew up as a fan of your goaltending partner, Andy Moog, and, and I grew up in Brandon, Manitoba. Every time we traveled to Winnipeg, 
you played. No offense to you, but I really wanted to see Andy. I didn't get to see him play a game, even when he was in Boston, until he was in Dallas. Every time I went in, the other guy. So for the most childish of reasons, I did not like you. I apologize for eight-year-old Dean Millard's behavior, but I'm a really big fan of you now, and I'm really glad to have you on the show. Thanks. Unfortunate, <laughs> One of those unfortunate things, I happen to have pretty good luck in Winnipeg. There you go. Well, you did play well every time I watched you, so I did get to to watch you play. But it's so good to uh, to have you on the show now, and I, I want to talk um, maybe just about you know your your life as a kid trying to become a goaltender. I I, I saw in uh, the wonderful documentary Making Coco that you couldn't find southpaw gloves, so you had to do the other way, the the regular, the, I guess the left handed catching way. I was the same way in golf. I'm a lefty, but couldn't find lefty golf clubs, so I had to learn how to golf as a righty. Do you think this made you better as a goaltender, having to play as a youngster with the other equipment? I, you know what? I don't think it hurt me any. I mean, I know my first, oh, probably six or seven years, I played at the opposite hand. And even when I practice with the Oilers sometimes, I like to switch gloves once in a while just to see. So, I mean, did it hurt me? No. If anything, it was a bit of a benefit. Yeah, I think so. What that that must have been weird when you switched gloves and and maybe the guys who didn't know you could do it right away they must have been like, "Wow, this guy is crazy. He can catch with both hands." Well, you know what? It was fun. I think that was the biggest thing. Is it it breaks the monotony of practice where you can go out and have some fun with it, and our guys like to have a lot of fun at practice. Yeah, and and that is important, uh, especially when you guys played so deep into the playoffs each year. Uh, breaking up that monotony is. Uh, is so important, isn't it? It is. I mean, the season's a long season to start with, and you add an extra two and a half, three months to it, you got to have enjoy what you're doing. And Glenn Sather was really good about that, where we were allowed to have a lot of fun. Uh, that's good. A, a coach that, uh, you know, knows the room. Now, I, I also probably think you grew up in the uh, era where there weren't a lot of goalie coaches. I mean, when I grew up playing goal, it was some kid's dad who would come and just shoot on the goalie and didn't really know anything about it. Thankfully for the goalies out there that are growing up now, it's not like that. But, you know, you grew up in an era, I did too, where there just wasn't that specific coaching that there is now, which is so much better for the position, isn't it? It is. I mean, unfortunately, when I grew up, you learned on your own. You learned by trial and error. And I got lucky as my first year as a pro as I had Ronnie real low as my roommate. So right. I could run, run things by him, bounce things off of him. And that really helped, especially as an 18-year-old. So... I, nowadays, you've got a goalie coach, and you're not so much there to coach the position as you're there as kind of a psychologist, and you can suggest and such, and you've got to try and convince them it's their idea. Yeah, and and how important is it, do you think, that we have goalie coaches for kids? I mean, I don't think we need that for five and six and seven-year-olds, but when you get into an age where you know, you're know you starting to play competitive hockey, I think it's important, just like a, a, a specific guy for the defense, there should be a guy for those goaltenders at a certain age when they're kids. I agree. You want to teach the fundamentals right out of the gate. And it's a lot easier to learn when you're six, seven, eight years old than it is when you're 25, 26, 27 years old. So I think it's it's a great start for kids if they can find a coach right out of the gate that teaches them the proper fundamentals. 
Yeah, 100%. Uh, so you get drafted uh, as an oiler after playing in Victoria. And, uh, you know, you you grew up in this area. So I kind of wonder what your what was your thought process of the Oilers then? Obviously, there was no social media buzz, but there, there was probably a buzz around this team. So what was it like for you getting drafted by this team that you, you know, went to games or, you know, knew and followed and, and now you might be a part of them? Oh, it was fun. I mean, I moved away at 15 to go play junior hockey. So obviously the opportunity to move back home, it's fun to play in front of family, friends, but to just be a part of the organization. I mean, I grew up as a kid watching the Oilers, the WHA into the NHL. So just to be a part of that and to be from Spruce Grove, which is all of what, about 10 miles outside Edmonton was a big deal. Do you remember a lot of buzz around this young Oilers team or had that started yet? I hadn't quite started it. The year before I was drafted, they upset Montreal in the playoffs. So the buzz right. had just started that year. And Andy was phenomenal in that series. So it actually surprised me that I even got drafted by Edmonton. Yeah, there's a, a really good part. I don't want to spoil too much of it in the documentary, but it, it really does show how, uh, you know, Barry Frazier, you know, really fought for you with with Glenn Sather. And, you know, I don't know when it was in your life that you kind of found that out, but uh, it, it's amazing the twists and turns that happened to take you down uh, life's road. And, you know, Barry Frazier was a math apart in you becoming an Edmonton Oiler. Well, he's a huge part of it. I, I found out during the documentary, actually, the first time I saw the doc, I realized that Glenn originally didn't want to draft me. I had no idea the whole time I played there. So I, it was entertaining during the documentary. Yeah, that's uh, what a way what a way to find out. Well, Glenn did a good job keeping a secret. And as he said, it was mutually beneficial for uh, for everybody. And, um, you know, as an Edmonton Oiler and, and, and before that, uh, you played in an era where we saw some of the coolest masks. I mean, some of the designs now are cool. I and mean, that uh, Seattle uh, Kraken mask looks really, really cool that they just unveiled the other day. But you played in the old time actual mask. Now, what was it like wearing that type of mask that, you know, we used to wear them in street hockey. You wore them in real hockey. It's great as long as you didn't get hit. Yeah. Hey, people don't realize if you got hit with that on, it was like somebody hit you with a baseball bat. And they were designed so you didn't get cut. That's about all they did. But they look good doing it. I mean, if if you take a shot on that, it's like there's there, there was hardly any protection. Um, and, and, you know, I'm surprised that guys, you know, didn't get hurt more seriously back then. Well, you learned to catch back then. You (laughs) weren't, you weren't used, you weren't just blocking the puck. You wanted to catch it because if you didn't catch it, everything hurt. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, what about the designs on the mask? I, I know goaltenders today uh, are very uh, involved and intricate. What was the designs like? Did you have a lot of say in those designs? Who designs uh, those masks for you in the early days with the Oilers? Uh, you get a little bit of say, but my first one, I did all the work on that myself. And then Greg Harrison did my second, did probably my second three or four. And then um, I'm trying to think of her name, Marlene. I can't remember her last name. Did my last bunch after about halfway through my career in Toronto. So the very first mask you designed yourself? Yeah, I painted it. I painted it. I wore it in junior. I painted it in junior and wore it in Edmonton. I just switched colors up a little bit. 
Well, the uh, the times sure have uh, changed a little bit, but I, I like the uh, the design. And, you know, I always found uh, guys like, uh, I think it was like Murray Bannerman and Warren Skordinsky that you guys would play in different times. I always found uh, those, those masks looked uh, really cool. And, you know, there, there was a lot of creativity back in the day with uh, with some of those masks, wasn't there? There was. You could have some fun with it. I mean, part of the whole deal is you wanted it to look good with the uniform. So... You add a little color to things. Later in my career, I get to add some color to the pads and everything. So at least if you played badly, you look good doing it. Yeah, 100%. Um, what was was there, uh, you know, I don't know if it would take a long, but was there an adjustment when you went away from the mask to, you know, you had the helmet. And I know Andy wore the uh, the helmet and the spider cage. But what was there any kind of an adjustment going to that helmet mask uh, a- after wearing those masks for so long? It takes you probably three or four days to get comfortable with it. And it wasn't a huge change, but it still takes a little bit of time to adjust because it, it feels different. And you're used to something flush on your face. The air doesn't really flow through it all that well. And then all of a sudden, you you almost feel like you've got an open face. So it, it probably took a week before you threw it into a game. Did you feel, you, know, you talked about before about not wanting to get hit. Did you feel more secure wearing it? Did it give you kind of a feeling of secure, it's secure more security? I never really worried about it. I felt secure in the old one. So <laughs> having that one, and I know it didn't hurt as much when you got hit. That was the bonus to that. Yeah, no doubt. What, what were you like? Speaking of that, uh, some goalies, you were such a calm guy in games. Were you the same thing in practice? If guys were firing shots high, would, would you say something or would you just kind of let it go? What were you type of goalie were you in practice? No, you just let it go. That's part of the job. They're paid to score. You're paid to stop them. So you want them to try and score because it makes you be better. So you didn't. I didn't care if they shot high or not. What if they hit you? It, part of the job. It goes with it. You didn't like it, but you still had to do it. Yeah. Uh, speaking of equipment, you inspired a lot of kids to wear DNR pads over the years. I remember the first DNR pads I got, they were in all black with the white lettering. And I did, were just, I was thought it was so cool. What did you like about uh, the DNR pads? What I really liked was some of the colorways I could get. And the first pair I saw, I think it was Danny Bouchard that was wearing a pair. And they just, they looked comfortable. And then I got a chance to try out a pair, and I really liked the way they felt. And I could do some cool things with the colors in them. Did they? Did you feel they uh, fit your style at all uh, in any kind of way? They did. I mean, it allowed me to play the way I played, where I could be mobile and move around. And I, that was the biggest thing back then is the pads were heavy, so you had to feel comfortable to move around in them. And the DNRs let me move around a bunch. Yeah, the difference in equipment uh, today and, you know, I had Kelly Rudy on a while back and we were talking about how heavy his equipment weighed after the Easter epic where uh, all those overtimes, well, you know, now, you know, you could, uh, you, you, the equipment is is so super light and the fabric is so different. You don't really go through those kind of issues anymore, do you? You don't. I mean, what's a pair of pad weighs maybe six pounds now where when we started, they probably 14, 15 pounds when they were dry and they were dry for about two days a year. That was it. They just kept getting heavier as the year went. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, Grant, you played obviously on 
you know, one of the greatest dynasties uh, in the National Hockey League. Uh, and, and we could talk all day about uh, the Hall of Famers that were on that team. And, you know, congratulations uh, to Kevin Lowe, who I think we all who watched those dynasties knew how important he was uh, in those. So there was those great players that are already in the Hall of Fame. And then uh, there's a guy like Kevin Lowe who probably doesn't get enough credit for what he meant to those dynasties, uh, does he? No, not at all. I mean, we were known as an offensive hockey team, and I think everybody looked at what we could do offensively, and our defense never, ever got looked at. So you see the guys like Kevin, Randy Gregg, Lee Fogelin, Donnie Jackson, they were all a huge – Steve Smith, Jeff Bukaboom, and they were all a huge part of the, the style we could play because they were good defensively. Yeah, I, I love the name. Some of the names that you mentioned, and you know, people remember the the superstars and the Conn Smythe Trophy winners. But you don't win a team sport without unsung heroes. Who are some? And you, and you just mentioned some of those guys, but who were some of the other guys that you know came in and you know maybe they weren't there for all the championships, but they contributed, and maybe they didn't score all the points, but they checked. And who were some of those unsung heroes that you remember on those championship teams? We always added somebody along the deadline. I mean, we added Keith Acton, Ken Linsman, Kent Nielsen. Uh, we had guys like Patty Hughes, Davey Hunter. So we, we had all the different elements that we needed where we could play an offensive game. We could play a tight checking game. We could play a physical game because we had Marty McSorley, Kevin McClellan, Dave Semenko. So it really didn't matter the style of hockey that the other team wanted to play. We could play that style. And, and you're right. There was always, uh, it seemed like Glenn Sather was always adding parts. And, you know, some of them would be small bit parts. And then, you know, there's times where it's, you know, a Paul Coffey for a Craig Simpson that, you know, changes the dynamic. But he was always trying, you know, Glenn Sather never seemed like he was satisfied with that team. And, and some people would be like, are you crazy? You won so much. Well, maybe that's why. Well, I think a lot of the reasons why you have to tweak little things every year. I mean, if you don't start to change things up a little bit, a piece here, a piece there, then guys get complacent. So I think it kept everybody on their toes. Uh, there's a, a real, that, that famous story of uh, guys walking past the Islander locker room after the first time you guys lost and saying, oh, wow, this is kind of what we need to do. And I'm paraphrasing here a little bit about what we need to do to to become champions. Were there other specific learning moments that that you remember, um, you know, along the way or during those championship years? Well, I think we learned a lot the first year we lost to the Kings in a best of five. I mean, hmm. we were the better team by far, but they unfortunately played better than we did that first round. So that was a big learning experience for me. I mean, that was my first playoff and. Needless to say, it didn't go very well, but at the same time, you just realize you have to be better. Yeah, and and very rarely do championship uh, teams and, and cha- that win multiple championships uh, not go through that kind of learning or, or or face any kind of adversity. And and of course, there was you know adversity along the way. You, you know, 1986. You guys talk about that maybe being one of the better teams that you had. And then there's the adversity of that goal. And the one thing that always stood out to me. Grant is how gracious you were in that situation. And I know there were, you know, some other things going on with, uh, you know, a death in the family, but you could have easily just let Steve Smith take all the blame uh, for that situation. And you didn't. And I think that's one thing that maybe people realize how gracious of a person you are. That's just, I imagine that's just the way you were raised by your parents is that, you know, you, you, you pick up a teammate when he's down. 
It was. I mean, I'm fortunate to be raised by great parents and it's a team game. You win as a team, you lose as a team. So there's no single individual that's going to cause you to win or lose. Everything's done. Everything happens for a purpose. I mean, for us, it may have refocused us a little bit and might have made us better in the long run. Yeah. And, and you, you kind of look back at that now, but in, in that time you're, you know, you're, you're crushed and you're, you know, you're wanting to win. Um, but it was like, you know, the, 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 the press jumped all over Steve Smith and, and you really, I think you defended him quite well in those situations. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that a game happens fast and accidents happen, bad goals happen. It's just one of those things that happens. And when I thought what taught us at the time was if you play the way you your team's capable of playing you don't leave it for a bad bounce or something to change the outcome of a game and I think that was a big thing that we learned in that is why make a game close if you don't have to yeah that's that's such a good point you know you don't make that game's not close that goal doesn't have uh, such an impact and such as revision uh, revisiting history is it's easy to figure it out uh many years down the road but we we spoke earlier about the unsung heroes and and i want to ask you about the ultimate hero the greatest player in the game the goat wayne gretzky i mean you had the best seed in the house for the development of the best player ever to play the game and maybe at the time you didn't realize it maybe you did but can you just tell us what it was like watching Wayne Gretzky in his prime just absolutely dominate you know what the fun part is I had the best seat in the house every day I get to practice against him I get to see how good he really was and I get to watch it in games so you couldn't ask for a better seat to watch how he thought the game how he th- the way he played, the way he kind of read the game. And as a goalie, you watch a player like that, you learn how to read the game because in practice to stop him, you have to read what he's going to do. So in that sense, it made me a better goalie because you're seeing the game through his eyes. Wow, yeah. Would would you like see something in you know practice and then like two days later see it in the game and be like, oh, wow, that's why he was working on that or something? Like I imagine this – this time of your life must have been like you're always seeing something new, kind of like what we see with Connor McDavid these days. But for a goalie, especially for me, it was a learning experience the whole time. I mean, the, the faster you read the game, the faster you look. So as a goalie, you're trying to learn, and I was lucky enough to play with six or seven of the best players in the world at that time. It's always going to be hard in practice, and that actually made the games easier. Yeah, would would Gretzky and Messier and like would Anderson be driving the net and pra- like did, did did they practice like they played and and what was what were those those intense practices like? Oh no, Glenn was all about that. You had to practice how you played, so we practiced hard, and guys wanted to score and we wanted to stop them. And I think that's part of what it made Andy and I so good is we had drills that were designed. If they didn't score, they had to skate. Well, guys don't like to skate, so they want to score. If the goalies let a goal in, then we had to skate. And as a goalie, I can guarantee you, we didn't want to skate. So it made it competitive. Yeah, not with 40-pound pads, that's for sure. And and that's the, that's what you want, right? You want those practices to, and as, as Glenn said, practice like you play. And you, it's hard to replicate that intensity, but it sounds like you guys seem to do it. Our guys were really good at that, especially for goalies. I mean, they tried to score like it was a game. And that's what made it the games easier for us is because we saw it when they were going 100% all the time. I mean, we didn't practice long. We practiced for 45 minutes or so, so the guys could go at a high tempo. Mm. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so many, so many coaches I see spend way too much time at the whiteboard these days, more action, more movement in the practice, less talking. I think you can do a lot of that talking in the dressing room. So you guys were sort of ahead of your time. You mentioned Andy Moog and I mentioned earlier that I grew up him, you know, he was my uh, favorite goalie. What was it? You know, I've always wondered what the, the dynamic was. Did you, did, you know, you guys split a lot of the time and then playoffs, you did get the, uh, the bulk of the the time was did, was there ever any feelings of jealousy resentment how did you guys manage to keep that relationship like it was uh for you know to have that kind of success i think we looked at it as we were partners and if i played well it forced him to be better if he played well it forced me to be better and the team won on either hand so during the regular season we would play probably split the games almost 50-50 down the middle and 83 Andy was lucky enough to play, and then I get to play in 84, and we had a little bit of luck in 84, so that might have given me the one step ahead, but at the same time, you had to perform to keep that step. So the fun of having Andy around is it made me a better goalie. Yeah, and and I don't think you guys can have the success that you had if there was resentment in that relationship, right? If you guys weren't both... Oh, ultimately, like people can talk about every goalie stat you want. I don't care. The, the the W is the main stat. Save percentage is great. Goals against average is more of a team stat. The win is the stat that every goalie should be concerned with. And if if you're both worried or pissed off or one of you is worried or pissed off about playing time, I don't think that cohesive relationship develops. No, it definitely doesn't. I mean, and that's the one thing that Glenn was really good about is it's about winning. And we didn't care about save percentage. We didn't really care about goals against average. It's can you make the right save at the right time? And as much as hockey's changed today, it still comes down to, can you make that right save at the right time? And it's about winning. I don't know how friendly you ever were with uh, opponents, but what was it like uh, during 88? Uh, You know, Andy uh, ends up uh, in Boston and uh, faces you guys in the uh, Stanley cup final. You know, what was that dynamic alike of, you know, facing, and I don't know if it ever mattered to you who was at the other end of the net, but this is a guy that, you know, you you went through a lot of time with, and now he's on the opposition with the ultimate prize. It's a great story. Uh, what was it like for you? You know what? We were still friends. I mean, it, right up until today, we're still friends. So it's always fun to play against a friend. Hey, obviously, you want to do a, make one more save than he makes, but at the same time, it's a friendly competition. It's a fun competition. Is there any contact? Was there any contact? Uh, you know, there wasn't, wasn't texting or anything then, but, you know, did you, what was it like? Or were you all business? No, I think we were both all business. Hey, the great thing is we didn't have cell phones back then. So <laughs> there, there wasn't a whole lot of communication. No doubt. I mentioned that I would go in and watch uh, you play uh, as an oiler against the Winnipeg Jets a lot. And the one guy that you faced there and, and, Kudos on you for having success because this guy was deadly, and that's Dale Howard, Chuck. And unfortunately, he's lost his uh, his battle with uh, cancer most recently. Um, I guess let's talk. To, I just want to ask you on the hockey side. You know what made Dale Howard, Chuck, so tough to stop as a goaltender? Well, I think he was a smart player. I think that's the biggest thing. And I don't know if he, as much as he's in the Hall of Fame, I still don't think he got as much credit as he deserved. I mean, he was one of those guys that could do everything. He could check. He could score. He was a great passer of the puck, which you had to be careful of. It was just an element. He had the all the elements of being a superstar. 
Yeah, and you, you had the chance to play with him in uh, international competition. From from everything I've heard, uh, the kind of the term that goes with him is the most humble superstar. And, and all the stories you hear, uh, even before he passed on, you, you heard that Dale Towerchuk was just one of these guys that, you know, was just he was good for the game and he was a good guy to look up to. He was great for the game and a great teammate. I mean, I was lucky enough to play with him a little bit in Buffalo, played mm-hmm. with him in St. Louis. So got to actually spent a lot of time with him, got to be good friends with his son. Actually, his son and I still play some golf together. So I, he's one of those the great guys of the game. Yeah, he was. And you're right. I mean, those those Winnipeg Jet teams, if, if they're in the Norris division, you might end up playing them a lot in the conference final. But they just happen to be in the Smythe where the Flames and the Oilers ruled for so long. But, you know, you, you had some incredible battles against the uh, the Winnipeg Jets at different times. We did. I mean, that's the funny part of what the Smite division was at that time is probably three of the best five teams in the league were all in one division where we had ourselves, we had Calgary, and you had Winnipeg. And somebody was going out in the first round. And that was the unfortunate part of the way it was set up at that time. I think if Winnipeg is in the other division or if they were in the East, they'd have been in some Stanley Cup finals. Yeah, very much so. And they're kind of right on that uh, fringe of possibly being in the East. Uh, we we kind of mentioned the equipment earlier that you wore, uh, the kick saves that you would make. Is, is that something that, you know, you kind of had to teach yourself about playing goal? Where did the kick save start in your style? Was that always there as a kid? Did it start in junior? Where did the kick save come from with you? Uh, just a way of getting hit. I mean, I think you look at back at some of the old tapes of guys like Glenn Hall, Roger Crozier, uh, Tony Esposito, guys like that. They had a little bit of butterfly, but yet they could make kick saves, that sort of thing, where they roll the foot out. And it's just things you pick up from watching other goalies and watching TV. What benefit do you think the kick save had over just the straight butterfly? I think it allowed me to be a little bit more mobile, allowed me to turn rebounds more to corners. It just it's a, just a different way of playing. I mean, I was always taught that after the first save, you want to be up on your feet. So it allowed me to do that. Yeah, you have to be ready for the next shot, right? Uh, like pool, you always want to leave yourself in a, in a better position. And the one thing that um, you know you uh, you know not pioneered, but took the skill and, and developed it is is puck handling. I mean, you know, you, we can go back to the days of Jacques Plant for a guy coming out and roving to the puck, but. Uh, you became a better puck handler over time. You weren't always a great puck handler, but you got really good at it. I think you had 14 assists one year. When did you think, like, I got to get better at handling the puck, and why? Well, my first couple of years, actually, I was horrible at it. You know, <laughs> I think most of the guys I played with would tell you that, too. But it was part of playing in our end. As the pro game advanced, for our team to be offensive, it was all about transition. And for our transition to be good... That meant I had to put pucks in the right areas. It means I had to control pucks. And as the team got better, I got better. And I spent a lot of time working at it with Glenn Sather, with John Muckler, where they were they would spend some extra time with me and help me with my puck handling skills. You also were, as I mentioned earlier, very gracious in the uh, after the 1986 defeat uh, where the puck deflected off the skate and went in. Um, you didn't throw anybody. I don't know if you've ever thrown anybody under the bus. So there's a lot of goaltenders that like to do a lot of pointing or a lot of uh, raising of the arms. And you know, I probably did my fair share when I was a goalie uh, as a kid too. But 
How were you always so good at dealing with whether it was a, a guy who tipped it past you, friendly fire or a giveaway? You never seem to get upset at a defenseman in on the ice. Maybe you did later. I'm not sure. But you never you never seem to show up a defenseman if he made or a forward if he made a mistake. Where, where did that come from? How were you able to do that? That's just the way I was taught to play the game. You're the last guy to make the mistake. So you don't make a mistake. It doesn't go in. So the fact that you've made a mistake, you can't point out whether somebody else made a mistake or not because you only control yourself. And if a puck goes in, you fish it out of the net and away you go. There's no sense trying to show anybody up or you made the mistake that it got by you. Yeah, a lot of people would wonder that think that, think that um, it would be almost impossible not to keep that in. But I guess the, the, the way you look at it is that and and plus the other thing is that how is that going to improve that guy's confidence? Yeah, that's the other thing too, right? It's true. I mean, it's all about perception. If you're calm and relaxed and you don't get flustered by a goal going in, chances are your team's not going to get flustered if you give up a goal, even if it's a bad one. They don't get flustered because they know you're not flustered. So it, it was a mindset that I had and a mindset that I was taught at a young age. Uh, and I think that mindset would almost make it impossible to trash talk you. I mean, some other guy on another team could be saying almost anything to you and you're just kind of calm. Maybe you have even a smile on your face. Like did, when people tried to trash talk you, I, I don't, I don't imagine you said anything back. No, a pretty good chance. I might laugh at him a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I, used, I used to have a lot of fun playing against Theo and Dougie Gilmore and guys like Dino Cicerelli that are always right in your face. So we'd have some good laughs and some conversations and it was fun that way. Yeah. I think when you don't react, uh, it then, then it kind of takes that trash talking power away. Or if you laugh, it's it, it's not getting to you. So it kind of, it, it, it doesn't, it, it depowers it, if you will. I take some of it away. I mean, yeah, guys are going to fall on you. They're going to run into you, that sort of thing. And all you do is laugh about it and get up and just keep playing. There's not a whole lot that they can do about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's such a great strategy. Um, I also love the fact that you golf on uh, game days, you know, you know, playoffs, different things. And I think there was a hilarious story. They asked you why you played 54 and you said because the there wasn't enough light to play 72. Is that kind of how that uh, story went? Yeah, it was, it was actually an off day before game seven against Philly. And I went out and played golf. So... I forget who the reporter was that asked me the question. He's like, well, what'd you do? I said, I went and played golf. He said, well, why'd you go play golf? I said, well, it's relaxing. Well, how many, how many holes did you play? I said, I don't know, maybe 36, 54. He's like, why so many? I said, I have no idea. He says, why, what, why didn't you play more? So I got dark. So it just, it kind of left him buffaloed right there. Yeah. Yeah. But for, for you, uh, you know, and I've, I, Rob Brown was telling me some crazy stories about Alexi Kovalev and them golfing on, on off days and things like that. They actually golfed with opponents that they were playing with one time, but was it, was it a way to kind of loosen, loosen your knees and just kind of get, or is it just uh, something to take your mind off the game? What was, what did you love about playing golf uh, during the, the playoffs? Cause obviously you weren't playing a lot of golf in November in, a, in, in Edmonton. Yeah. You know what it was? It's, it's relaxing. And it's four hours away from the game. And when it gets to playoff time, you need that break because in a city like Edmonton, Toronto, it's hockey 24-7. And the fact that it gives you that little four-hour break from it, because every channel you turn on, it's got hockey. Every person you talk to, it's hockey. So it just gives you that little break where your mind gets a bit of a rest. 
Yeah, I think it's uh, if 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 it do, do whatever it does to relax you and get you prepared for the game is what every player uh, should be doing. Um, now we mentioned the Canada Cup earlier, and for me, that is the greatest three games of hockey ever. I know the '72 was great, and I know that game between Red Army and Montreal on New Year's '75 is a classic. But these three games for me is easily the best international hockey. 6-5-6-5-6-5. Not, not the, the most flattering for a goaltender, but did you ever have more fun? Did you ever play against better competition than those three games? No, I never played with or against better competition. And that was the fun part is both teams could score a pile of goals. Even if you gave up five goals, you still had to play good. And that's the part that kind of got lost in the shuffle a little bit is you still had to be good. And that was the fun of it. I mean, I was used to seeing it in Edmonton. We played a lot of 6-5 games, so yeah. it, it was a style of hockey that I knew and was comfortable with. That final goal, Gretzky setting up Lemieux with Larry Murphy playing the perfect decoy, um, but it's it's so, when you hear the stories of that goal, and Dale Howarchuk told the story recently before he passed about neither Wayne or Mario wanted to take the draw, and I, I think it speaks to the skills of Dale Howarchuk that two of the greatest players of the game deferred to him to take that draw, and then he makes a crucial play in the neutral zone as well. Probably it was interference, but led to that goal. That whole sequence uh, just has Hall of Famers written all over it from Gretzky, Lemieux, Murphy, Howarchuk. Oh, I know. That was the fun of it all. Today's game, it's interference. Old school hockey, not so much. Right. But but that was the fun part of old school hockey. You could hook and hold a little bit and guys still found a way to fight through it and score. And that's, that's the way the game was. I mean, that was the part I enjoyed is you weren't worried about a referee. They weren't going to be the difference because – by the third period, they put whistles away. And it didn't matter whether it was international, whether it was a regular season, whether it was playoff, the rules didn't change. They stayed the same, and the single referee had control of the game. And you knew come the third period that the rules changed. And that was the fun. You know, I didn't realize it at the time, uh, but re-watching that series again, I, I was watching Game 3, and it, it led me to this kind of thought process here you are in 87 you had just beaten the flyers in the stanley cup in in game seven and then you guys all get together for the uh the canada cup um and and ron hextall was the con Smythe trophy winner and mike keenan is the head coach did you ever think in, in like even in game three you're down three nothing did you ever think that this guy might go to his goalie like I, it's it's amazing that you played every minute of that, and he had the Conn Smythe Trophy who plays for his team on the bench. Like I think it shows where you were at that time as far as goaltenders, but it's kind of an amazing, when you take a look back at it, that whole scenario. Well, the strange part about it was Hexie and I were roommates through the whole Canada Cup. So we just competed against <laughs> each other in the finals, and we went to Banff. The team got together, went to Banff, and Hexie I, and I were roommates and stayed roommates through the whole thing. So... It was actually a lot of fun, and it, it's fun to see the guys you compete against to see what they're like away from the game, and they couldn't have been nicer guys, and it was all about winning and winning as a team, so their theories from their team, the theories from our team weren't any different. It was just a matter of execution. That 84 team, I remember Brent Sutter telling me, though, there was the Oilers and the Islanders had to smooth things out a little bit, and there was, you know, it was 
for for some of these guys playing with their uh, opponents for the first time. So it does take a little while, uh, maybe your first couple of times in international hockey, especially if you just come off facing the opponent in the Stanley Cup finals to to get used to it. But, it, it you know, as a veteran of international tournaments, you get used to that after a while. The first time might be weird, though. The first time's always a little bit awkward, but until you get to know the guys. And I think they did a good job of getting the guys to intermingle and mix a little bit and we did some different things as a team, and I think that makes it a lot easier. Uh, one of the things that we mentioned, the 86 goal and, and how gracious you were uh, and, and the early adversity that you guys faced with the Islanders. You faced adversity as far as injuries, you know, the shoulder injury early on that you had. And then there was obviously uh, you played that incredible season in St. Louis and, and the, the Kiprios injury. And then the the what I call it, the railroaded by the league and, and getting suspended for it without a positive test. When you look back at these things, do you see specific things that you learn or do you realize at the time this is going to be a learning experience and it's going to make me better? Or, you know, what's the kind of that thought process when you face adversity? What's your, I guess, personal mantra when you face adversity? Well, I think the biggest thing that I learned out of the whole thing is you live life. I mean, life's not taught in a school. It's not taught in a classroom where you get out and you actually experience life, you live life, you're going to make mistakes and you don't realize they're mistakes until you make them. So did I do some things the wrong way? Yeah, I did. But you learn from them and it's what's molds you into the person you are today. So as much fun as it wasn't at that time, it's made me a better person in the long run. And I think that's the best part of the whole deal is I wouldn't change anything, the good, the bad, the ugly, because it has made me a better person. Well, and, and aside from just learning things, you don't hide from it either. I mean, it, you know, people come after you on Twitter and, and I, I don't know how you graciously are so gracious, but you, you say, I made a mistake and, and I, I've accepted it. I don't, you're so gracious on Twitter and that's the exact way to deal with people because you, you did, you made a mistake and you move on. You know what? Life is hard to live and very few people get through life without ever making a mistake. So if you want to rub a mistake in somebody's face, you might want to look back in the mirror a little quick because sometimes it'll jump up and bite you. Whereas I made mistakes. I know I made mistakes. I can admit it to myself. I can admit it to my friends, my family, and it doesn't bother me. It's part of life and part of growing up. Yeah. Do you think you would be on social media if it exists, if you were playing today? Because I, I don't I don't think social media is terribly healthy for professional athletes. Uh, let's just say I'm happy we didn't have social media. <laughs> <laughs> I think I played, I think I played in the right era. No social media. You were allowed to have fun. Uh, our teams were allowed to bond together. So I think I picked the right era to play in. Yeah, no doubt. And you had such a great career. Uh, and then you, you kind of knew when it was uh, when it was done. Uh, was there a specific moment where you said, yep, I'm, I, I know I'm ready to retire and I'm content? Well, when I started to spend more time sitting in an ice tub than I was on the ice, then I knew it was time. And the knee, the last year I played the knee, if I practiced every day, then I'd spend 40 minutes in an ice tub. If I played a game, then I'd be in the ice tub after the game, back in the ice tub in the morning. And it was starting to take the fun out of the game. And I made a promise to myself that if I wasn't having fun, that it'd be time to retire. So as the fun started to leave, it was a good time for me to get out. Well, at least, you know, right. And, and that's the important thing. And, and you, you know, you're, you had, 
you know, for some guys, when they retire, they're like, what am I going to do? And it seemed like you were like, yeah, I'm going to be a, a golfer. And and I don't know, it never seemed like you were ever uncomfortable in the crease on the golf course. Do you ever get or have you ever had that feeling on the first tee? Oh, I'm way more comfortable in the crease. There's no question. Yeah. But I mean, I was lucky enough. I walked into coaching for a few years after I finished playing where True. I was still still part of the game. I, yeah, you don't have the control that you have when you're on the ice, but it gave me a different perspective of the game. And I, I really enjoyed that. And Calgary gave me a great opportunity there. And then with Wayne and Phoenix, I got the opportunity to do it again. So between doing that and trying to play a little bit of professional golf, it filled that void of retirement where you don't have that emptiness. And when was it that you said, or did you always know you wanted to give pro golf a try? Uh, you know what? I wanted to try it just to see if a guy could do it. Mm-hmm. And then you realize that they put as much time in at golf as you do at hockey. So it wasn't going to happen, but it was fun to go out and try and compete because the thing you miss when you retire is the opportunity to compete at something. And that's the beauty of golf is it gives you that opportunity to compete. Yeah. Like if, if you put it into hockey terms, uh, if you were compare the grind of a golfer, it would be like, okay, you're going to work on your wrist shot for an hour. Now you're going to work on your slap shot for an hour. Like the grind for a golfer is all day at the golf course. And then, you know, you try to go win a tournament. It is. I mean, I was lucky enough. I had some friends that played on the PJ tour and I'd spend some time on a tournament week practicing with them where you'd get up at six in the morning, go have breakfast. You'd hit balls for a couple of hours go out, play nine holes, come back in, have lunch, go hit balls for an hour, go back out, play nine holes, come in, putt till dark. And they would do that every day. And you you see the work and the effort that they put into it that's kind of lost that nobody ever gets to see. Yeah, totally. It's, uh, it is amazing, the grind. What, what do you love? What do you, why do you love golf so much? What's, and what's your, what's your current role uh, in the golf industry? Uh, right now, I'm the director of golf out at a golf club in Palm Springs. But I think golf's the greatest game there is because it's a challenge every day. And it's not so much that you're playing against other people. You're playing against yourself because nothing ever happens the same. And the golf courses, you get different bounces every day. So you're always competing against yourself to try and get better. Yeah. it's and Or the golf course too, right? You're competing against the actual golf course itself. You are. And nine times out of 10, the golf course wins. So that, that's the fun. Golf's the one sport that what you put into it, it will give back to you. And that's the part I really enjoy. Yeah. I also was told one time and I, uh, you know, for years I tried to get my handicap to a single digit and couldn't do it. But somebody said one time golf is the only sport where the ball is sitting still or standing still. If you think about every other sport, baseball, you're trying to hit a, a 98 mile an hour cut fastball or something and whatever hockey, the puck is basketball, the golf, the golf ball is sitting still and it's still that hard to hit it. Oh, I know. It's amazing. I mean, I would still rather face a hundred mile an hour slap shot than have to make a four foot putt to win something. (laughs) No doubt. Uh, I I referenced making Coco the documentary the other day. I thought it was uh, just spectacular. What was it like, um, you know, kind of putting your life out there? You know, people know bits and parts, but, you know, somebody that didn't watch you play or didn't grow up in that generation might not know that much. Was there was there apprehension about uh, putting your whole life on the big screen? Uh, there was a little bit. It took Donnie Metz a little while to convince me that it'd be a really good idea to do it. But at the same time, how many people get the opportunity to live their life twice? And I think that was the other part is that you get a chance to 
go over some things. There's a lot of things I'd forgotten about. And at the end of the day, if it helps somebody else, then it's worth doing. Yeah, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to sit down with Don Matz in his uh, library. My wife had the pleasure of working at Aquila Productions uh, for a bunch of years, and uh, just the the video library that that guy must have, man, it it must be amazing. Oh, it's phenomenal. I mean, there's footage that I didn't even know existed, and there were some interviews and things like that that I'd forgotten about, and it was fun to sit and go through all that stuff and talk to Donnie and Adam Scorgi, who was our producer, was phenomenal. I mean, they went through things. They they knew some things were going to be uncomfortable and such, but they still put it in a way that you could get through it, and it wasn't like it ripped your heart out. I know that you mentioned when you went into uh, the Hall of Fame about uh, you know Willie O'Ree being an inspiration for you and uh, for you uh, being the first person of color in the Hall of Fame. I think it would be inspiring for a lot of kids out there, you know, whatever uh, color they are, just knowing that uh, this is uh, something that somebody accomplished what is, you know, is being a role model something important to you? It is important. I mean, I think for myself, when I speak with kids and spend some time with kids, that one, I've had some success, but two, I've also made some mistakes. And the fact that I can sit and talk to them and tell them that, hey, you don't have to be perfect. You have to be able to live your life and be yourself more than anything and believe in yourself. And it's a, it's a big part of what I try and tell kids. Yeah, the, the hockey, you know, uh, sport culture, life culture uh, is, is being, um, I guess, investigated right now by the world uh, to make sure that, uh, you know, like, uh, there's no place in not just sport, life or anything for, for racism. And and hockey is for everyone is such a an important mantra for the league to go on uh, for not just people of color, but of uh, LBGTQ or anything uh, to be inclusive. I think hockey is one of the more inclusive sports that are that is out there, but I didn't play it at a professional level. Did you ever feel, feel like you weren't included because of your skin color? No. If anything, I felt I was included the whole time. I mean, I don't think – the great thing about hockey is nobody looked at skin color. They looked at you as a teammate, a player, and they wanted to know you could play the game. And I think that was the biggest thing. Yeah, and and I think that uh, I think that these are important discussions for people to be having right now um, of all walks of life. So you know, hockey uh, needs to to you know l- listen. Every walk of life is going to have people in it that, let's face it, are not nice, are mean, are racist, are whatever. And the faster we can get them out of hockey, uh, uh, the better. Uh, but I, I think this is something that. Uh, I commend today's players for stepping forward and and taking the mantle and and trying to move forward with this. I agree. I mean, unfortunately, society's taken a few steps backwards. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, sport can kind of lead the way in taking a few steps forwards. And I think hockey's been that game where we take great pride in the game itself. And I think the NHL's done a good job of it with the diversity program and hockey's for everyone. But I also think that there's still room to grow, and I think they're good going about it a great way, and it's going to get better and better. Yeah, and and these athletes more than ever have a platform, and uh, we we have to not everybody. It's because listen, not everybody is comfortable with putting their face out there, but we can all do our part. And for those that are comfortable, 
you know, they should use their platform. If, if, if somebody's going to, is comfortable using their platform to try and sell something, they should try to uh, sell quality of life for everybody. And I think that it's important. And, and I commend the guys that are using their platforms out there that, you know, you guys didn't have back in the day, you know, as you mentioned, thankfully social media, I'm glad I didn't grow up with that too, but it's there. <laughs> it's there for the player today to take advantage of if they want to. It is. And I, and that's part of why I get on Twitter and Facebook and that sort of thing is it's amazing how many people have derogatory thoughts and such towards athletes. So it's a way of defending athletes and that sort of thing. And at the same time, letting people know that, Hey, we're normal people. We're no different than anybody else. And the fact that, yeah, we get a little bit of a platform. If we can make the world better, then that's what you're there for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and that's what I felt uh, the other day. A lot of people were complaining about Tuka Rask leaving the NHL bubble. And, uh, you know, we don't know what is going on in Tuka Rask's life. And the, the thing that I look at is that, you know, and, and I'm just using this as an example. I'm not saying this is the situation, but an example like something like mental health. Well, just because you're a very rich NHL player with prestige does not mean you're not affected and you don't miss your family or you don't have certain other issues. I think people sometimes get wrapped up in this uh, thought process that, you know, fame and fortune means you're immune to everyday things. Yeah, I mean, we're no different than anybody else. We eat, sleep, put our pants on one leg at a time like everybody else and I'm not sure what happened with Tuca, but at the same time, if there's family issues, that sort of thing, then it's very understandable. And bubble life's not going to be easy. I mean, when you're contained in a bubble, it's going to be hard. And sometimes things come up in life that are more important than the game. hundred percent. Quickly on the NHL, uh, what do you think of uh, some teams going with uh, different goalies? Uh, do you, are you a one guy throughout the playoffs unless he struggles? Or do you think a two-goalie system will actually catch on in the postseason at some point? I'm a guy of picking whoever gets the job done. I mean, ultimately, I, I listened to the NHL Network a little bit this morning, and they're talking about, well, this guy's got a great save percentage and this and that. I'm not a big numbers guy. I want to know, can you make the save that allows me to win? And I think it's going to come down to that with the last eight teams. Is It's going to come down to who they think is going to be able to make that save that gets them over the next round. All right, let's wrap up with word association. And I went through and picked out some of your uh, former goaltending partners. So one word for each of these guys, and we'll start with uh, one of the first guys that you came on with, Ron Lowe. Uh, Mentor. Andy Moog. Great partner. Ron Hextall. Great competitor. Bill Ranford. Great partner. Pokey Reddick. Great partner and roommate. Oh, nice. Felix Potvin. More talent than anybody gave him credit for. Interesting. Dominic Hasek. Uh, probably the most fun partner I played with. And you, you, you played with him like before he exploded too, right? I played with him in Buffalo and I played against him in Canada Cups. That's right. Kelly Rudy. Uh, great competitor. Another guy that didn't get enough credit for the way he played. Jamie McLennan. One of my favorite partners. We had a lot of fun together. He is hilarious. And we'll wrap up with Fred Brathwaite. Freddie B was one of my favorites. Little small story about Freddie. When I got traded to Calgary, I joined the team in Phoenix, and Freddie was my roommate. And I, I forgot what time I get in, around 10, 10 o'clock at night. Well, Freddie had ordered cheeseburgers because he knew that I liked to have a cheeseburger after a game. 
That's a great roommate, man. So perfect roommate. Absolutely. Grant, this has been so much fun. Uh, I apologize again on behalf of eight-year-old Dean Millard, who didn't like you because you always played instead of Andy Moog when I watched you play. But uh, 44-year-old Dean Millard really appreciates the time you gave me, and I've really appreciated getting to know you over the years throughout a different interview. So thank you so much for your time, and best of luck. Thank you very much, and it's my pleasure. But he stopped when his dad yelled, shut up. This is the Sports and More podcast with Dean Millard. Cut the gas when his girlfriend yelled, slow down. Cameron used to read, but he closed the sleeve when his friend yelled, hey, Great song there from Sweet Bejesus, the official music and band of Sports and More, the podcast. That was Cameron from their debut album, Policeman's Creek. You can find it on Apple Music. Christian Gutzis and Kevin Dabbs make up uh, Sweet Bejesus. And as mentioned, their debut album, Policeman's Creek. What a great conversation with Grant Fuhrer. You know, I always was worried about interviewing Grant Fuhrer when I was in radio and TV because he was such a, you know, a very... Uh, word economic guy. <laughs> I, I'm trying to find the right word, uh, the right phrase for it. Uh, he just doesn't say a whole lot in his answers, but you get him in a bit of a longer format and, and it was fun. You know, I, I really enjoyed that. And, and I, I hope I, uh, I didn't offend him by telling him, but it was true. When I was a kid, I would go see the Oilers and I'd be like, why isn't Moog playing? because Grant Fear was so good and had great uh, numbers against the Winnipeg Jets, and that's the reason he's in the Hockey Hall of Fame. So big thanks to Grant for his time and uh, his openness. And like I said, you should really, if you haven't, check out the documentary Making Coco. It is fantastic. Uh, that was a fun chat, certainly, uh, with Grant Fear, and uh, we got a few more things to get to on the show. This is a serious message. Peace and love. Peace and love. The ultimate franchise fantasy sports poll question is what we have to get to now. And uh, this is a question about uh, this year's and next year's playoffs. Did you like the play-in series is basically where we're getting at. And do you want to see it in the 2021 Stanley Cup playoffs? Uh, So far, 86.4% say no just the 16 that make it you can also have your say uh yes one play-in series for pom- per conference or two yes two play-in conference series so nine percent of the people say have one per conference so that would be i guess the eighth and ninth place team uh 4.5 say two uh, so that could be anywhere from uh you could do uh seven um, through eight, nine, ten, I guess, uh, is, is how you would do that one to have two teams get in and, and 86% say, nope, just the top 16 that make it in. So you can have your say at duck Millard on Twitter and, uh, 
tell us what you think. What do you like or what do you don't like when it comes to that uh, play in series and get more details about the ultimate franchise fantasy sports platform, which will include MMA very shortly and then some other sports. It's going to be the biggest thing uh, to to impact fantasy in a long time, and it's going to end up being the biggest fantasy platform uh, that there is out there. So check it out, uffsports.com. Just before we wrap things up, we're doing perfect player, and we're doing Euler goalies uh, when it comes to perfect player. How can we not with Grand Fuhrer? So what you do with perfect player, you take three guys, put them together to make the perfect player. So we did defenseman one time, and I think I had coffee, low, and pronger. Uh, so I, I'm. how do you not go with Grand Fuhrer? Five Stanley Cups, Gretzky calls him the greatest hockey player of all time. I mean, his kick saves were dynamite. They were just simply awesome. Uh, so I don't know how you don't go with Grant Fuhrer as one of those goalies. So I'm going to definitely put uh, Grant Fuhrer uh, in as one of my goalies. Um, I'm also going to go with Bill Ranford just because he was so wild and unpredictable, like a, a bit like a Dominic Hasek. Um, you know, Billy R won the Smythe in 1990 and he was brilliant. Um, I he never lived up to that again, but he was brilliant during that stretch and, and would always make these crazy acrobatic saves, two pad stacks and, uh, and, and the like, and, you know, I'm a huge Andy Moog fan. He was the guy I grew up with, but I'm going with a different guy that wore number, uh, or that wore an Oilers Jersey. He didn't wear 35, he wore 31 like Grant Fuhr. And that's Cujo. Uh, I thought Cujo for a while was the best goalie in the NHL and he was the best player in the Oilers for a while. And some of those series, he was legendary. So Fuhr, Cujo and Billy R. I might've gone with Dwayne Rollison cause he was so good, but he just wasn't a fun guy to, to be around at all. He, he just really was not a fun guy to talk to. He made it uh, really difficult. It's like he went out of his way. Um, so yeah, he was good for, you know, a half hour when he was an oiler. He was very good. Might've won the con Smythe, but I just can't put him in that, uh, for personal reasons that might not be right, but that's just the way I'm going. Fear, Ranford, Cujo, my perfect player when it comes to oiler goalies. And that's it for the show this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Big thanks to Grant Fuhr for giving us some time. And uh, we'll have one-timers with Grant Fuhr where we find out some of the things he'd like to do as a kid and beyond. That'll come out in a couple of days. Hope you enjoyed this show. If you did, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you can. And also check out podcastalley.ca for all of your podcast needs. We also have blogs, contests, everything. Check it out. Let me know what you think of that show. And if you'd like to be a part of this program as an advertiser, hit me up on email at sportsandmorepod at gmail.com. That is sportsandmorepod at gmail.com. We leave you with Roly Poly Baby from Sweet But Jesus. Big thanks to Grant Fuhr for joining us on the show. Playtime is over.
is the secret to a long life So do not lie and do what's right Always have humility Do your best to succeed You're alright Honesty and empathy Anything worth anything ain't easy
with Anderson coming in to go. Oh! 